we've been doing Advent, and we first talked about the idea of peace, and that uh, is this candle, and it kind of stands for the idea of the prophecy candle. Then there's, no, that's hope. Hope is the prophecy candle. This one is peace. See, I've already messed it up, and I'm going to light my arm on fire. Hope is the prophecy candle. Peace was called the Bethlehem candle. Joy was called the shepherd's candle. Love don't do this to me. There we go. Love was the angel's candle. And finally, wrapping all of this together is this concept of a candle. Some people do four, some people do five. A candle that, is, that represents Jesus, that pulls this all together. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit. And we're going to do, you know, I'm, I'm constantly, if you've been here a while, I'm constantly in this search trying to do Christmas messages that aren't the typical Christmas messages. So if you're visiting this morning and you came, I want to hear about the angels and the shepherds and the baby, and I just want it to be sweet, and I, and I want it to just be a happy thing. Sorry, okay? So I'm gonna read to you 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. So you can follow along with me in your Bible or on your phone or just listen as I read it. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. So this is not your typical Christmas message, but what this does is actually what I want to look at is something that is deeper than just talking about a baby and talking about shepherds and talking about angels, which we've heard so many times, it just can become just, you know, you don't even think about it. I want to talk about something, this idea of what caused God to do this, and how does that apply to us? Practically speaking, how do we walk away from here different if we see what God did in Jesus at Christmas time? All right? So we're going to look at 1 John here, just this little passage. John, who was the closest friend, pretty sure he's the closest friend Jesus had. When John wrote this, he's at the end of his life. He, he sees how the followers of this rabbi Jesus, how this has exploded and is just cascading and and, and marching throughout the world. And he also sees that, that there is a problem that can come of this. Complacency can set in. The story of the birth of Jesus for them, just like it can be for us, can become so familiar, too familiar. And so John is getting back to the roots, how it all started. That first morning, that first Christmas morning, he wants to remind them of the essence of Christ's coming. The essence of Christmas, God's love for us. Now, love is a huge thing in our culture. In any culture, love is a huge thing. We all want it. It feels elusive. We're all looking for it. And we're all tired of this cheap and shallow kind of love that fails all too often. And so we have to think, what is love? You know, and I'm dating myself, in 1984, foreigner wrote and sang, I want to know what love is. And isn't it interesting, the next line, I want you to show me. I want you to show me what love is. Get to work, right? The exact opposite of what love should be, right? 
Years ago, Glamour Magazine, and yes, big fan of Glamour here, subscribe to it all the time. They're out, they don't print a magazine anymore, devastating. Glamour Magazine had for years what was called the answer couple. And it was a married couple that answered questions that other couples put in on how to love one another. And it was wildly successful. I mean, it was a part of their magazine that their, their internal studies showed was one of the popular things that, you know, those things people go to first when they get a magazine. Me, that was me, I did, right? Recently, not that long ago, one of the uh, part of the couple wrote a uh, op-ed and it said, the answer couple, don't ask me, because they'd broken up. And it said, don't ask us, because we couldn't stay together. And it's, it is a very poignant article. It, it is, there's all these emotions, all the emotions, all the struggles of someone who's seen a relationship fall apart. Anger, guilt, wistful thinking, wondering what exactly went wrong, wishing, wishing for something, but not knowing what. And finally, at the end of the article, the writer concludes, no one knows what love is, but I will keep pursuing it because I know I desperately want it. And you know, that's where lots of people are at. I want it. I will desperately pursue it. And I can't quite figure it out. And Paul talks about this a little bit in that famous, famous uh, chapter in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. This is the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. It's the part that you don't use in a wedding, right? 1 Corinthians 13 is in all kinds of weddings, not these first three verses. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have not a faith that can move, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, then I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. He says, it's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing. Only what's done in love will last. And Paul's trying to get them to look past this kind of cultural idea of what love is that we can get all caught up in also and say, don't you understand, you can be so gifted. But if it's not done in love, it's even, even the gifted things are worth nothing. Ultimately, only what is done in love is what will last. So this is, this is what we're talking about, not a feeling that comes and goes. Love is not that. Love is a decision. It's an act of the will. In this book of 1 John, John is continually hammering them with, this is your identity. Who am I? This is who you are. This is who you are. And he says, ultimately, you're saying, I am loved. Therefore, that uniquely qualifies me to love others. So let's look at this passage. We're going to look at first the origin of love. Where does it come from? How, does it, how do we get our hands on this? And he tells them, he says, dear friends, let us, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so he's saying to them, dear friends, this, this, I I'm sometimes quarrel a little bit. Dear friends is kind of a saccharine. It, it's saying, dearly beloved. John is telling them, I love you so much. Understand this. And it's his way of saying, pay attention to this. 
This is important. He says, you're dearly loved. What is your identity? You are one who is dearly loved by God. This is something he says, so let us love one another. This is something we can work on based on this fact that we are loved. He's saying we need to love one another. We need to be loving. I mean, especially within the household of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we need to care about each other. But it's hard, right? It's hard sometimes to love people, even in the family of God, even in the church. There's misunderstandings. You can get your feelings hurt. There can be disagreements. If you pastor in one place long enough, over the years you begin to realize there are people that you have hurt, maybe, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally. And it's, it's a hard thing to, to deal with when you understand that. And even, even in this room, there's people that I have hurt and they have been gracious enough to forgive me. This is as children, as, as part of the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to love each other, forgive each other. You cannot love like this on your own. It has to be from God. And God says, okay, help me. I say, God, help me love this person. Recognize you cannot resolve this situation on your own power. I realize that I cannot do it. This all starts with a decision. It starts with realizing Jesus came, and as the Son of God, he lived a life you could not live. He was perfectly obedient to God, and he died a death that we would deserve. He paid for our sins and was raised from the dead. And so we respond. We respond. I accept Christ, what Christ has done for me. I give myself to you. I'm a follower of Christ. This understanding of who we are and who God is and then responding in that way, when this is established in a person's life, then the Holy Spirit, God tells us, the Holy Spirit comes to reside within us and give us power to work to give the ability to love in ways we never thought possible. You know, people can love apart from God, but oftentimes it is a very shallow form, as I mentioned. It's a need-based love. It's love that comes in the form of a transaction. You love me and I will love you. You stop loving me, I quit. But when we accept Christ as our Savior, when we're connected to the source of love, that changes our lives from the inside out. It changes the dynamic. And so John is saying, the one who consistently and practically loves those around themselves, around herself, around himself, you love those people consistently. You love them practically. That's a sign that they know Jesus Christ. It's, it's a sign they know God. These words of, of intimacy. It ties in with a word that John loves, abiding. He says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God. Whoever does not love does not know God. And he, he constantly is telling them there's this knowing, there's this, he, and at times he uses the word abiding. It's making, making something my home. It's where I run. It's where I find my worth. It's my safe place. The one, he's not talking about necessarily salvation here. He's talking about what is your foundation that you're secure in? And oftentimes, we make a foundation that is so many other things. We trust other things instead of trusting God. He says, when you make this your foundation, when you abide here, then love comes. It flows. It becomes a part of your life. And it becomes a sign to other people. They look and they see, just as we see, just as we see in the book of Acts. People saying, behold, how they love one another. It stood out. 
It became obvious to everyone. But what's going on here? He's worried that they're missing something. He says, we have to be in the habit of loving. Why? Because God is love. Now, that's a really powerful statement when you read that in Scripture. God is love. It's not saying, it's not saying here, you know, that, that God is, like if we see God, we, we understand more what love is, which is true. He's saying he is, in and of himself, at his very core, his very essence, God is love. It's not he is loving. It's, and he is loving. But he's not saying that. He's saying he is love. It emphasizes God in a practical way. Now, this is important in those days, and it can be important in our days too, but in those days especially, the Greeks often thought of gods not having any kind of morality. God was not some, a moral thing in their life. They're different gods. Their different gods weren't even interested in their daily lives. What they did with their time was not something that the gods were interested in. The gods were interested in having you coming and bringing money you had to bring a certain amount of money as a sacrifice to the God to get the God to do something. And so it was a give and take system. It was a transactional system. It wasn't love. And it wasn't caring. Gods didn't care about their integrity or what they did as a job or how well they did as a job. It was not something that was even an issue to them. They didn't even think about it. But here, God is personal. He's practical. He cares about every aspect of their lives, of our lives. This whole book is talking about that. Personal behavior is emphasized. Why does it matter if I love someone? John roars back. He thunders because God is love. And to not love is to disavow God in your life. To not love is to act as if God means nothing to you. You can't do it. It's impossible, he says. It's to deny him and to and deny what he's doing in your life. See, God, as 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 we see him in the word of God, and as we see him in our personal lives, he's intensely interested in our personal lives. There's nothing like that anywhere else in the world. He cares about what we do and how we do it. He cares about our integrity. And it doesn't, this, the love of God doesn't rule out other aspects of God. He cares about justice. Why? Because he is love, he cares about justice. He cares about truth. Why? Because he is love, he cares about truth. He even gets angry. Why? Because he loves, he, get ang he gets angry. And this, this, in a sense, this liberates us to become ourselves because love became flesh and blood. And we talked about this so much. He understands us. He knows how it feels. The incarnation, and if you were here last week, incarnation. Carne, remember that? We talked about that. Jose and I went to uh, get a bite to eat the other day at the uh, place Papa Nacho's behind us, and I had carne asada. And I just looked up and I said, Jesus in the meat, incarnation. And Jose said, you, you really are going to go with that, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. So God is love. Now, We've talked about this too, but there are multiple words for love in the Greek. In English, we have one word, love. I love my wife. I love pizza. Those are not the same kind of love. They're not, trust me. Some of you that aren't sure, they're not. In the Greek, there's a word, first word was eros. Eros is this idea of a sensual love. It's a volcanic love. And the Greeks 
really, they, in a, in, they feared it in a sense because it was a love that was often out of control. They, they didn't like that they lost control of themselves when Eros got too involved. They didn't like that. It, and and uh, it was, it's a love that really is about getting. Then in the Greek, they had the word storge. It's natural affection. It, it, it makes me feel good. We're close. Then there's two other words, phileo and agape. Now, these two words are often used interchangeably in the New Testament, interchangeably in the New Testament. They are both held up as exemplary uh, ideas about love um, and, and oftentimes is used as God's love for us. But there are some differences, slight, subtle differences. Phileo is most often used as the idea of family, love in a family. It can be a self-sacrificial love in a family. The closeness is due to the relationship, right? That's, that's very important. Agape is a love that expresses itself even if there's not a relationship. It manifests itself even when there's no relationship. It's, it's, it's sacrificial. It's putting another ahead of yourself. And this is always used, this is used all the time about God. This idea that God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before there was a relationship, he showed love, self-sacrificial love. And that's the word. It's how Jesus lived. It's how heaven will be. Um, there's a, a journalist. His name is Sebastian Younger. And uh, he, um, he wrote a book uh, called War. And he, it, he also, the, a movie called Restrepo, which uh, talks about his a company of, of uh, soldiers that he spent a year with in Afghanistan under intense uh, situations uh, the company he was with was involved in the most firefights in one year than anyone was involved in in, in all of Afghanistan. It, it was so. It was, and he wrote about this because he started talking about, what he did is he started talking about love and the love that these men have for one for another. In his book, he talks about, he, he talks about these two guys and he was saying they, they just despised each other. They rubbed each other the wrong way. They got mad at each other all the time. And then in a firefight, one of them got up and covered the other when a grenade blew off and gave his life for someone he despised. And he was, in, he was thinking about this, and he was talking to these soldiers, and, and he was saying, you know, why is that? And they were saying, they were saying look, it's because, because there's something deeper here than just our emotions for each other. He says, we have, guy said, we have a mutual agreement to put the safety of others ahead of our own safety. We have a mutual agreement to put each other's safety ahead of our own safety. And he said, studies have shown, it's, P, PTSD is a terrible problem, but it's not what most so, soldiers say they struggle with. They miss the brotherhood of the men they served with. They, and, and, and invariably, they say they hate war and they hate killing people, but they miss these men that said, I will lay down my life for you, even though you make me so angry sometimes. I will lay self-sacrificial love. But even that is in the context of a relationship. Sebastian Younger writes, he writes that courage is simply this, love in action. Think about that. Courage is love in action. Why does a soldier throw himself on a grenade? Love. Love. This love of sacrificing 
for the sake of others is the love that God has for us. That is the love that drove Jesus Christ to come to earth and take on flesh, become God in the flesh, because he loved us. So that leads us to that. This is the example of love. Verse 9, this, sorry, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent our son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God demonstrates this. He shows it. Christ dies for us. Jesus is the ultimate example of a soldier throwing himself on a grenade. All the ways we see see Jesus loving in the gospel are merely a prelude to this ultimate example of love that he would die for us. You know, we see this all the time. It's in, it's in our music, it's in our, our literature, it's in our movies, in the way that people express this kind of love. It's the thread that runs through Harry Potter. His mother lovingly sacrificed her life for his own. In the earliest movie of Wonder Woman, what changed her? Steve Trevor gave his life to save the world. And that, this kind of thing, it, it, it resonates with us. Why does it resonate with us? Because our hearts are geared towards that. You know, these are echoes of eternity in our heart. We see this and, it, and, and we, we go, yes, that's what it's supposed to be. And John is saying, you want to understand the depths of God's love? Here it is. He sent his son to die for our sins. But to understand the depths of his love, you have to understand also his ferocity. God's ferocity, his hatred of sin. You know, one time when one of my kids did something, I have more kids here today, I better be careful who I talk about. One of my kids did something wrong, I won't mention Reagan's name, uh, I was upset. I was upset because she had done something to her little brother Cody and it was, it was just mean, it was just mean. And I just was so surprised because it was kind of out of character for Reagan. So I was feeling very Old Testament-y, very King James-y, right? I said, I am going to smite thee and thou shalt be smitten into next week. You know, I, I just was ready to say that. And she said, she said, Dad, are you mad at me? Do you hate me for this? And I was just like, oh boy, take stock, get control. Why am I mad? And what am I mad at? That's what's key here. And I told her, I said, no, honey, I'm not mad at you, but I'm mad about what you did because you hurt your brother. You hurt him. Why would you think about that? Now let's figure out what we're gonna do. Let's figure out what we're going to do about this. See, God hates sin, but not us. He hates what it does to us. He hates the pain that it brings into our lives. So, so many of these, 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 these uh, things you see in the Bible, in the Old Testament, don't do this. It's not God going, don't do this, or I'm going to just slam you on the head with my, you know, my eternal club or something. It's God saying, no, don't do this, because I see where this is going to lead you, and it's horrific. You will hate it. It will be devastating. Don't do it. Don't do it. You know, I know, I, I, I talked to a guy not too long ago, and he said, well, why can't God just look away? Why can't God just pretend, forget it, act like it didn't happen, look away from sin? But see, that doesn't work. And we know it doesn't work. You think about it. You think about it. This is where I get into our common misconceptions of forgiveness. Think about if somebody really hurts you, somebody at work, somebody in your family, they hurt you deeply. And somebody comes up to you and says, well, you just have to forgive them. Does that work? 
No, the answer is no. Why? Because, you know, you say, I want to forgive them, and then it comes back, right? It comes back. I want to, oh, God, help me to forgive him. Oh, I'd like to punch him in the face, though. You know, it comes right back because the memory is strong and the pain is real. And so, so what is forgiveness then, biblically? Forgiveness is deciding to pay the price for what someone did. You pay the price. If you forgive them, the pain is still there. Why? Because it still has to be paid for. And forgiveness is saying, I'm willing to take on the pain. I, that's my fa- it's my favorite illustration. My kids, some of my kids playing with some of their friends and ha- they're having a FIFA tournament in our living room and we're out front raking and I hear some yelling and all of a sudden a butt comes through our front window. Just boosh like that. And I come in and I'm just like, what in the world? You guys are just playing FIFA. I'm so mad and they all like that. And finally, it was determined who did it, and I talked to him, and I finally just said, look, it's okay. I forgive you. Now, I forgave him, but the window still has to be paid for, right? I took on the price of the window by forgiving him, and I paid for the window. That's what forgiveness is, and that's what God did. That's why he's so angry about sin. That's why why sin is such a big deal. And that's why he can't just say, ah, forget it, because it still has to be paid for. Just saying, forget it. I can say, forget it to to that teenager that broke a window. I can just say, ah, forget it. But the window's not fixed, and it hadn't been paid for. That's what forgiveness is. That's why forgiveness is not easy. And that's why if you're trying to forgive someone, it keeps coming back sometimes. Why? Because you're still working through it and it's still being paid for because it hurt. It's ridiculous to think that someone can hurt you deeply and you can just forgive them and it'll just go away. That never works. That never works. And so when you see this, when you see someone you love doing destructive things, what happens? You get upset with them. Because of the sin, you hate to see it happening to them. And God says, I have to have justice. The window has to be paid for, and he pays for it. Because if you have a judge that, ha- that, that, that just lets everything slide, there's no integrity. There's no justice in that. So how does God keep his integrity? How does he deal justly and show his love and grace? He pays for it. And Jesus volunteered to pay. This is the atonement. This is why he came. We're celebrating tomorrow the birth of Christ, and this is why he came, to deal with sin. God's anger at sin and the need for justice is satisfied by Jesus, and now we are liberated because fear of justice has been taken care of. He's paid it. He's done it for us, and now we can love. So let's think about this practically, this kind of love. What does it look like? From this passage, here we go. The first thing is, it's visible. In verse nine, God shows his love. This kind of love, you see it in action. You see it. It's not sending happy thoughts towards, send us all your warm thoughts in this situation. It's not that, it's doing something. The word, uh, it, it has this idea that it brings for something to be brought to light, for the lights to be turned on so you can see it, so it's revealed. Biblical love is seen not just heard. Second thing is, it's decisive. There's a decision involved. Why? God made a decision. God sent his son. 
The word sent there means to send a, a representative with credentials, like miracles, commissioned to accomplish a specific mission on behalf of the sender. He was sent for a purpose. And it's very interesting because it says, um, yeah, let's just pull that back up. When he says, this is how God showed his love, he sent his one and only son. That word sent, uh, this gets a little bit into the Greek, but it's, it's in the perfect tense. And it means there is an action that happens and the effects of that action run. And it doesn't need to be repeated. It doesn't need to be repeated. Past completed action having results to this very day. It's, it's a, that's a powerful word. So there's a decision-making process. Why? Because biblical love is an act of the will. It's an act of the will. It's a decision based on another person's needs. Sometimes I want to show love to my wife. I want to do something based on her needs. What that involves then is I have to figure out what her needs are. I have to decide. I have to figure that out. I have to think. I have to think it through. What, what would be something she could use? What would be something she needs? It's not necessarily based on feelings. That's very key. Third thing is, it's visible, it's decisive, it's sacrificial. It costs. He sent his son, his only begotten son. Love costs us and gives value to another person. When you love somebody, it costs you, but it gives value to another person. That's exactly what God did. It cost him, his son, he had to come and suffer and die, and it got, gave us value. He, the, 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 the theological word for that is imputation. He imputed to us, and it's a word that means, uh, often was used in finances, when money from one account was sent to another account, it was imputed to that account. So the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been put on my account. That's a really freeing thing if you start to think about it. I can live now. I can live now, not worrying about justice, not under a hammer, but I can live with a sense of self-worth and value and meaning. That means I'm somebody, I'm worth something. I'm worth, Jesus Christ says, you're worth my life to me. So it's sacrificial. And then what happens? When we give love, it adds value. Love addresses needs. In verse nine, we needed life and he addressed that need. But it also tells us, if you know God, there will be times when he calls you to give up something for the sake of others. He'll call you to sacrifice. Okay, so it's visible, it's decisive, it's sacrificial. Now love is purposeful. Look at this. It ties in with our need. He's sent to atone for our sin. So love knows what it's doing. It's not just something happenstance. It knows what it's doing. And the fifth one is, Love is judicial. What is that? It sees the true situation and it addresses the issues that are tough. It doesn't just skip over things. God doesn't just look over things and look past things. We can do that so easily. We say we care for someone so we don't confront them about something that's going on in their life that could be very destructive in their life. That's not love if you do that. Love steps into the situation and speaks the truth. Key, though, speaks the truth, the Bible says, speaks truth in love not to attack, but love doesn't just skip over things. When you see a brother in sin, when you see a sister in sin, in humility, you can go to them. Because hopefully, if it's you some other time, some will come to you. I've had this unique blessing, and I mean that, of having sometimes people from this church 
come to me and confront me about something. Say, I don't think that's right. And, and a few times saying, you know what? You're right. You're right. Thank you. Because that's what people who love each other do. Now, don't get all animated and say, okay, well, I'm going to come confront Bob this week because he seems to love it so much. I'm not saying I love it. <laughs> but I know it's best. Right? So God saw that sin, what sin was doing and he decided to act. An atonement had to be made. Something had to be done concerning sin to free us from it, from it. And sin had to be dealt with to create an intimacy with God, the atonement. And earlier in the book of John, he says, he is, Jesus, the, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. God saw the problem and said, I need to address this problem. That's what love does. And finally, the outworking of love. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me and the one who loves me will be loved by my father. And I too will love them and show myself to them. There's a process here. This is very interesting because he's describing a process. He's telling us that God loves us. That's first. First part of the process is God loves us. We realize that. And then we begin to act upon it. We can love others. And when we begin to love others, it says God lives in us. He abides in us. And then it says he works. What does he do? He reveals himself to us. When you begin to love in this way, God finds ways of just, and that word reveals real kind of a cool word. It's this idea of a glimpse, gives you a glimpse. He just gives you a glimpse. And it is, I can tell you from personal experience, this is the most awesome thing when God says, let me show you something that you didn't know anything about. Let me show you. And I say, thank you, God. This is awesome that you showed me. No one has seen him, but he reveals himself. How? Oftentimes through the acts of love of his children. You find someone to love. You act upon it, and God begins to work. In John, in John 14, there, oh, that's it, John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and, and keeps them is, is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. I will reveal myself to them. So there's this process we love. God then begins, God loves us. We see that, then we love, and God begins to work. And then we add value to other people in their lives because of that, and God begins to reveal himself. God begins to show himself to each, each, one of, each and every one of us. It's visible, it's decisive, it's sacrificial, it's purposeful, it's judicial, love acts. It's, an, it's a decision that we make. Now, all of this starts with that decision at the very beginning of accepting Christ as our Savior, and then it moves from there in a lifelong process of growing and becoming more like him. And I want to say, some of this you go, I don't know exactly what you're talking about. I'd love to talk to you. Not to, not to you know, browbeat you, not to give you a hard time or beat you over the head with the Bible, but simply to talk and discuss and have and, and have a, a discussion, not, not a one-way thing. I'd love to talk to you. Or, or, and I get this sometimes, if you're struggling with something in particular, I'd love to talk with you. This is a part of what this church pays me to do. I also love to talk, so that helps. So it all just kind of works together. And I, and I would love to talk to you. Just give a call. 
to the church, and, and we'll get in touch with you and arrange it, and we, and we can talk anytime that you'd like. As we consider this, I encourage you tomorrow. I mean, it's, I know, we, my kids come in, my grandkids are coming. It just gets crazy and fun. And, and, but every once in a while, just to keep remembering, where did this all start? What kind of love was shown? It was the love that God showed us through his son, Jesus, which he is still doing. And it's the love that he used when he worked in John's life and John started loving others and God started revealing himself to John. He's still in the, he's still in the business of revealing himself to people and showing them how powerful and awesome he is. I encourage you to want that, to desire that, because that's what God loves to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word points to Jesus from the very beginning to the very end. It is all about him. And Lord, his great love, your great love for us, it's a love that we really cannot imagine. Our minds have trouble grasping it. And I pray, God, that you'd give us glimpses, just glimpses of your love for us that would encourage us, that would energize us, that would give us peace and comfort in difficult times. Thank you for this uh, time of year and this celebration of what you did. That has, it has changed the world. And so, Lord, we thank you for being a part of it. In all of these things, we honor and bless and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.